Right, welcome back to the Brojo Online Podcast with me, Dan Munro. Now, for most of my career, I don't tell people what is right and wrong. Officially, that's not what I'm doing. I'm helping people figure that out for themselves. However, we've often looked for guidance on morality, haven't we? We've gone to the churches and the philosophers and asked us what is right and wrong, what is the best way to live? And I wanted to do this podcast today because I think that question has actually been answered. I don't mean it's been answered in full. There's still a lot of work to be done. But I believe the ultimate moral system has been found. And I believe it's been found by a philosopher, neuroscientist, and author, Sam Harris. Very popular figure. I'm obviously a fan, so I'm going to be biased there. And what he deems the moral landscape. So today we're going to be talking about why I believe the moral landscape is the ultimate guide to morality and something that we as humans should be following. And I'm also going to address some of the arguments against his theory, the main one being Hume's guillotine. We're going to talk about that and why that doesn't apply to him. And simply show that of all the moral paradigms that have ever been put forward, This is by far the most solid and the only one based in science. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So I'm going to assume as I do this podcast that you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about Sam Harris's moral landscape or when I talk about Hume's guillotine. So... If you are aware of that, please bear with me as I run through the basics for anybody who isn't up to date. Let's start with some backstory first, though. What is morality? In most simple terms, it is a guidance on what is right and wrong, what is good to do, what is bad to do. And until very, very recently, it was considered outside of the realm of science. That science could tell us what is, but it can't tell us what we ought to do. It can tell us what's true, but it can't tell us what to do with that truth. That's always been the presumption put forward quite heavily by religions and by philosophers and in some cases by scientists themselves. And it's always been considered that science should stay out of morality. Don't tell us what to do. Just tell us what is and we'll figure out what to do with that information. You can almost see science like reaching out to tell us what to do and someone slapping them away. No, you're not allowed here. Until recently, where Sam Harris brought forward what he calls the moral landscape. I'm not actually uh, an expert in in what he's put forward, but the gist of it is what I believe is the greatest hypothesis for morality ever put forward, and one that we can easily work on and develop quite quickly, especially with the use of computers and technology. I believe that leaving morality up to human subjectivity is a mistake. I I first became aware of this when I worked in the Department of Corrections and I was privy to the justice system and people going through the court system in particular and watching people being found guilty or not guilty and being sentenced and seeing that this could clearly be done so much better and so much more accurately. I believe the percentage ratio, something around 5% of all cases of capital punishment in America were later found to be innocent. That's 5% 5% of people sent to death row 
later found to be innocent. I'm not sure on the stats, but you can look it up for yourself. There's definitely a percentage there. We can, and, and I just saw with my own eyes, judges make poor decisions. I saw lawyers get people off on technicalities, people who are clearly guilty. And I saw people who were probably innocent, though had a past history that basically wrote them off. People who had been scared into making plea bargain deals, even though they were innocent, but they're used to going to prison. So they just thought, fuck it, I'll just go again anyway. So on, so forth. I just saw so many human error flaws in the justice system. The science is already pretty clear on this. We can see that there's clearly a bias towards attractive people in the courtroom, for example. The better looking you are, the lighter sentence you get, or the more likely you are to be found innocent, regardless of the facts of the case. Uh, we can also see that sending people to prison usually increases their risk of reoffending by about 50%. So that clearly doesn't work. There's no computer in the world that would allow such a grievous system to exist. Morality being left in the hands of humans when a machine could do it so much better. It's like saying that uh, the best chess players are human. No, not anymore. There are artificial intelligent machines who can beat pretty much everyone all the time, sometimes coming to a draw with the odd genius grandmaster or so, but humans just can't outthink machines. They're just so much better at it than we are. And yet we leave morality up to our own subjective opinions. We can't even get eyewitness testimony right, and we think we know what's right and wrong. It seems like we're leaving a very dangerous thing in the hands of very unskilled beings. Because if you get morality wrong, well, you can see what happened. World War II is an example of morality being misunderstood and misrepresented and being done wrong. The sex trafficking industry Little girls being kidnapped, forced into drugs, and then forced into prostitution. Clearly, that's wrong. And yet there's certain religious types doing that, and it completely aligns with their religion to do it. The, the Christian Bible basically says it's okay to have a slave. Clearly, people could be doing better with morality than we currently are. And that's where Sam Harris comes in. Essentially, what he's saying is, Science can do morality a lot better than human subjective opinion can. And the way Sam Harris's moral landscape works, essentially, is based on the concept of well-being. So things that increase our well-being are more moral than things that increase our suffering. That's the gist of his moral landscape. And he says landscape as in there's fluctuations, there's peaks and valleys. There's a lot of different ways to achieve well-being and there's a lot of different ways to suffer. This isn't black and white, it's nuanced. But there are still definite hierarchies. You know, for example, it's better to eat a salad than it is to drink sulfuric acid. That's not difficult to figure out. There's, there's no one in the world who benefits more from drinking sulfuric acid than from eating a salad. So if you're going to do something to someone and your two options are throw sulfuric acid at them or give them a salad, there's clearly a better moral choice there, according to the principles of well-being. That's what science says, but the problem or the argument against this is that first you have to make the claim that well-being is preferred, that it's good to have well-being. Well-being can come to a scientific definition. 
essentially it would be better health, it would be better finances, better relationships, better psychology. It'd be functioning well in all those areas and beyond. And suffering would be severe harm or pain taking place in any one of those areas of your life. This science can easily show us who lives longer and better and happier and why compared to people who live shorter miserably and in pain and suffering. Science can clearly show us what well-being is and how to measure it. But the argument against this, the argument against the idea of designing virtues or morals based on increased well-being and do decreased suffering is at first you have to make the claim that human well-being is a good thing. It's worth going for. And this is where philosophers, particularly the academics sit behind a desk type, jump in and have a complaint. They says, you can't say for sure that human well-being is a good thing. And that is where I want to start today. If human well-being can be definitively claimed to be a good thing, then Sam Harris's moral landscape, using science to increase well-being and making laws and rules and guidance for behavior based on that, is clearly superior to any other moral system out there. Look at any other moral system out there and you'll see grievous harm taking place in line with that moral system. Look at that uh, cartoonist who was murdered for drawing a picture of Muhammad. Now that's actually okay according to Islamic regime. All right, that's clearly something that could be improved on. What we can clearly see is that if we did say that well-being is what we should strive for, and then follow scientific guidance to do that, we're going to end up with some really good behavior from people in terms of increasing well-being and reducing suffering. Okay, if people applied that model, they would not traffic underage children for prostitution, because that's clearly not the height of well-being. They would not force people to do certain things that are against their own judgment, like the Islamic tradition of making women cover their faces. You know, we can clearly show with science that it's better to have freedom of choice when it comes to clothing than it is to be forced to wear something in terms of your psychological well-being. We wouldn't hit children. We wouldn't punish criminal offenders in a way that makes them worse rather than better. We wouldn't force children through an education system that doesn't respect their individuality, forces them into careers that make them miserable for the rest of their life. We wouldn't be doing any of that if we let science tell us what the best ideas are and followed that. It's very, very simple. And there'd be these peaks and valleys. Okay, so you could eat a Mediterranean diet and be healthy. Or you could eat a paleo diet and be healthy. You wouldn't have a moral system that says you must eat Mediterranean diet or you must be a vegan. It would just say the range of these all puts you in the healthy range of well-being. And there isn't only one bad way to eat as well. You know, if you eat nothing but McDonald's, you're going to suffer physically. If you smoke 50 cigarettes a day and drink lots of alcohol, you're going to suffer. We'd see these valleys of well-being. But we can see it with behavior as well. We can say that if you're respectful and compassionate toward other people, you generally end up with better psychology and so do they. Whereas if you're mean and nasty and violent towards people, they generally end up worse and so do you. So we can see again, these peaks and valleys. There's no one way to be a good person. There's lots of ways. 
And there's lots of ways to be a bad person, but there's definitely a difference between good and bad, especially as Harris puts forward, let's start with the extremes, right? Let's say it's bad to throw acid in someone's face. And let's say it's good to encourage someone who's trying to achieve their goals. We can start with these things where it's kind of like, is there really any scientific debate about this? Right? Is there really any science that says, no, actually that reduces well-being to encourage people who are doing well and then increases well-being to throw acid in someone's face? There's no study that shows that. Everything shows the opposite. So we can start with these like really well-proven facts of science and work inwards towards the much more nuanced stuff in the middle like whether abortion is right or wrong it's a very nuanced thing scientifically speaking you know the doesn't do the fetus very well in terms of well-being but then if the fetus is born into a hard life because the parent is unfit that would be very low well-being as well and the parent might suffer so that would be low well-being so it's hard to say exactly if that's right or wrong it's going to be much more nuanced in the middle and most moral systems don't allow for nuance and shades of gray there's like right and wrong, no discussion, right? You can't breach any of the Ten Commandments. You must obey the four virtues of Stoicism or whatever. Whereas Sam Harris's moral landscape is more like, no, we've got some hard extremes. And then as we get closer into the middle, we're going to have to take this more on a case-by-case basis. And, you know, we've got more variables to look at. And we're going to have to take our time and think things through, not just follow a rule book blindly. But ultimately still... This is a, a much more solid guidance system than the black and white, often outdated by thousands of years, virtue-based morality that we get from religion and philosophy. Let's enter Hume's guillotine. I'm going to say guillotine because that's how I prefer to say it, but I think the right way to say it is guillotine, but fuck it. So Hume's guillotine is a, a logical fallacy argument. You can't get an ought from an is. You can't get something that you prefer or prescribe that's an ought, this ought to happen, from something that is. This is true. You know, I can't get it's good to drink tea from tea is warm. All right. Now, it's true that tea is warm, but that doesn't mean that I can say it's good to drink tea. I can say McDonald's makes you fat, but I can't say it's bad to eat McDonald's. That's Hume's guillotine, 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 whatever the fuck. I'm getting confused now. And this is the basically the only solid argument against Sam's moral landscape. Because they say that he's claiming you're getting an ought from an is. That you're getting we ought to prefer human well-being uh, because the facts show that human well-being is preferable by humans or something like that, right? So philosophically, especially just in the classroom academically and not in the real world, which is what pisses me off about a lot of philosophers is they don't even live by the shit they argue against. You can't say for sure that humans increasing their well-being is a good thing. It's just a preference. You can't say that because there is well-being available that we should have it. But what I would argue is that human well-being is not an ought. It's not just a preference, but a fact particular the desire to increase well-being i think it's more aligned with the theory of gravity than say a preference of food flavor for us to be able to say that 
the desire to increase our well-being is a preference. It's just a choice. It's not a fact. We have to show exceptions. There should be some humans out there who don't prefer well-being to show that this is just a choice. We can definitely say that chocolate is sweet, but we can't say that therefore everyone should prefer chocolate because they don't. We can find people who prefer vanilla or raspberry. There are people who hate the taste of chocolate, probably, somewhere living in caves. We can find these clear exceptions that, yeah, you can, you can say that chocolate is sweet, but not everyone wants sweet. So you can't say that everyone should eat chocolate just because it's sweet. That's Hume's guillotine. But can you find a single human being who isn't trying, consciously or not, to increase their well-being? Should I say their sense of well-being? Because if you can't find any exceptions, just like you can't find any exceptions to humans needing water to survive or air to survive, if you can't find it, then it isn't a fact. It is an is rather than an ought. Now, before I go further down that path to sort of prove that well-being is a fact rather than a preference, you're still going to be hit with Hume's guillotine saying, well, being alive at all is a preference. It's an ought. Just because humans can live doesn't mean they should. But I think we can go ahead and throw that out because that is just the most absurd, pointless and unusable perspective of philosophy available to humans. Saying, well, we, there's no reason why we should live. Well, then kill yourself. Find me a philosopher who says there's nothing to prove that we should be alive, who will then kill themselves to prove that. You won't be able to. And even if you did, and here's the point I'm going to make, even if you did, it would be because in their mind, it would increase their sense of well-being. If it is undeniably a fact that we try to increase our, our well-being, then we can't say it's a preference. We can't say it's an order. We can't say that we have a choice in the matter. If we don't have a choice in the matter, then there's no point in discussing it philosophically. Philosophy is only there for things that we have a choice about. We don't discuss the philosophy of gravity. We don't discuss the philosophy of breathing oxygen. Actually, there is breath work, but what I mean is there's nobody there to say, like, should we really breathe? It's like, well, try not doing it. You got no choice, so let's not even discuss it. And that's why I hate about Hume's guillotine being applied to something that is beyond discussion anyway. So the human race doesn't even need to survive. Well, fuck off then. The rest of us who are going to survive, let's talk about how to do that well. If you don't think we even should, go swim in the ocean until you can't anymore. Like, stay out of the conversation. Because you are so impractical with your philosophy that it is pointless. I don't think any philosophy should be taken seriously if it can't be applied. It's just mental masturbation. It's academic mental masturbation. It's a professor wanking into the sleeve of his coat and not even living by it anyway. I've got no interest in that. I think it can be dismissed quite easily. But let's come back to Sam's moral landscape. So, human well-being, is that really a preference? If you're trying to think of exceptions to the rule, is there anybody out there who clearly has a preference for suffering or a preference away from well-being? Maybe the first example that come to your mind would be someone who commits suicide. Kind of like the ultimate act of ending well-being isn't it? And on the surface, that would look like somebody 
who does not prefer well-being. But only someone who doesn't understand depression and suicide would think that. Because 10 times out of 10, what a suicide is, is an attempt to reduce suffering. That's what it is. Which is just another way of saying increased well-being. Now, for some people, death would be an increase in well-being to being alive because of how hugely painful they perceive life to be. So someone who commits suicide isn't trying to reduce their well-being. They're trying to reduce their suffering, and that's the negative of increased well-being. If you increase well-being, you reduce suffering. If you reduce suffering, you increase well-being. Those things work together, together hand in hand, cause and effect. So you can't say that a suicide is an example, an exception to a human preference for well-being. It's just a very fucked up, warped one. Doesn't mean it's still not someone trying to reduce their suffering or increase their sense of well-being. And you'll see that actually in somebody who's decided to commit suicide, like not just someone trying to get attention, but someone who's gone all in, their sense of well-being goes up immediately. They're like, ah, finally, I found a way out. They usually go and have themselves a little holiday. They give away their stuff. It's actually the main warning sign when someone's depressed, suddenly is really happy and relaxed for a while. It's someone you've got to keep an eye on because they've made a decision about something. So maybe the next one is you find self-harmers. You think, well, what about the people who stay alive and hurt themselves on purpose? Surely they are not trying to increase their sense of well-being. Aren't they? If you understand human psychology of self-harm, you'll realize that that's exactly what they're doing. See, people think that somebody cuts up their thighs because they want to feel the pain of the blade. And to some extent, that's true. But if you actually talk to someone who's cut themselves, what you'll find is what they really want is a sense of control. That's what they're doing. They're doing something that they can control. Pain that they inflict on themselves is so much more controllable than the pain inflicted on them by others. So it actually increases their sense of well-being to cut themselves. Again, it might be warped and disordered, but it is still an inescapable urge to increase the sense of well-being. They can't help it. The most masochistic, sadistic person on the planet who likes to get kicked in the nuts for sexual thrills, still, he's trying to increase his sense of well-being. The people who do the most horrible acts, that's all they're ever trying to do is increase their sense of well-being. Even the people who seem to be trying to make themselves suffer, they actually get a sense of well-being from suffering. For example, the sense of familiarity. You know, one of the ways I was most challenged by this uh, theory, I guess, or hypothesis that people undeniably and inescapably desire increased well-being is people who go from one abusive relationship to another. You know, battered women syndrome, as it's sometimes known, where a woman will finally leave an abusive husband and her next boyfriend beats her, and she finds the next one and the next one. She just can't seem to get away from these guys. And I used to think, well, she's a glutton for punishment. Like, she must enjoy life sucking somehow. Or she, she'd prefer to be hurt than to be healthy. Except that's not why she's doing it. For a start, she's doing it not by conscious choice most of the time. It's just a subconscious pattern of choosing poor partners due to psychological disorder. But also, it's she's going for what's familiar. And familiarity gives us a sense of well-being. 
So often when you see someone doing something that's clearly harmful and they're doing it with whatever autonomy or free will actually exists for a human, you're like, they're choosing to suffer. No, they're choosing something they're familiar with. That's not suffering for them. It's suffering long-term, like the obesity that comes from eating lots of sugary snacks. But the eating of the sugary snack creates an instant sense of well-being. It's essentially just very ignorant, uh, amateurish attempt to increase well-being. And that's why something like the moral landscape is so important, is we can show people better ways to increase their well-being. A guidance system where it's like, you know what, eating sugar does make you feel good. I get it. But actually, if you eat healthy and exercise for a sustained period of time, you'll feel even better. So you might prefer to be pulled down to the center of the earth or not prefer it. It doesn't matter because gravity is a fact. You can't escape gravity. You have to obey its laws. Well, I'm putting it out there that the desire to increase well-being is not a preference, but a fact. You're absolutely consumed by it. You cannot make a decision against it. Anything you think you do to make yourself suffer is actually just to increase your sense of well-being. You always do things that you think are good for you to do. Consciously, you might have a different narrative about that, but any well-trained psychologist will be able to show you that you think you're doing the right thing. So, if Preference for well-being is not, in fact, a preference, but an inescapable biological urge that we cannot disobey. Then it's not an ought, but an is. And to get the moral landscape from the desire for well-being is not getting an, an ought from an is. Okay, it's getting an is from an is. The desire for increased well-being is fact, and therefore any moral system must be based on it. it must be based on who we actually are and science has been sitting there for hundreds of years now study after study finding after finding fact after fact on what's better for us and what's worse for us starting from a position of trying to increase well-being and this is the one thing that other philosophies do not necessarily do even if they claim to some of them, just by luck or good design, get pretty close. The four virtues of Stoicism, for example, you'll find that they align pretty well with the scientific findings around well-being. If you live with moderation and justice and courage and so on, you're likely to end up in a place with strong psychological and physical well-being. Okay, just, ha just so happens that those things align. They came up with those things over 2,000 years ago. It was good luck that they nailed it. Whereas if you take, say, something more removed from science, like the Christian Ten Commandments, the first commandment is you shall not worship false idols, there's no scientific finding to say that that increases or decreases your well-being. Could be that worshipping false idols for the right person really does make them feel better. I mean, a lot of people who claim to have found a better well-being after finding Christianity are essentially worshipping an idol. Okay, turns out that works for them. There's others, it leads them to fly planes into buildings. So it doesn't work out so well. So you can't say that's definitely aligned with well-being. It's more of a neutral. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, I think is the wording. That one is actually against well-being. If you're not allowed to want to bang people, if you suppress sexual urges, you get exactly what you get in the Catholic Church, pedophilia. 
I used to work with pedophiles. They are the result of suppressed sexuality, not released, suppressed. If you make people sexually ashamed, they end up more fucked up than people who aren't. And nearly every religion on the planet shames sexuality. So according to science, that's wrong to do, and we can prove it. Or should we say we can prove it? it's worse to do than not doing it? We can prove that well-being is increased with people who are shameless around sexuality than with people who are ashamed of it. So, unless you get to the pointless point of saying we can't even say that humans should exist, in which case go kill yourself because you're not helping, then the next level of truth is simply this. We must design a moral system based on increasing well-being because there is nothing else to go on that is objective. So science can do morality better than humans can, and it can prove it. That's what Sam Harris is saying. Just the way computers can play chess better than humans can, and it can be proven. If we really wanted to play the perfect chess game, we wouldn't leave it to the hands of a human. It doesn't mean a human shouldn't be involved in playing chess. I play chess myself. It's just saying if you want the best chess game, you've got to hand it over to a computer. You want the best moral system, you've got to hand it over to science. And it's going to get better and better once it's allowed to expand on that. And for those of the philosophers who are still clinging to Hume's guillotine and saying that, you're still getting an ought from an is or whatever it is, go ahead and live by that then. Let's say I go up to that philosopher in his university lecture hall where he spends an inordinate amount of his time. I say, okay, I'm going to give you a choice. Either I can throw this acid in your face or I can cook you your favorite meal. Find me a professor who's so dedicated to the moral relativity that, you know, you can't even say humans should exist that they would choose the acid. Find me one that can break away from the imperative desire for well-being. Funny thing is, if, even if you could find one, you get that person analyzed by the top, top psychologist in the world, and they're going to come to the conclusion that that person actually believes their sense of well-being would be increased in some way by the acid. For example, thinking that they would become famous. Like those... Uh, Serial killers who murder a bunch of people and then kill themselves, you think, well, that's not really well-being. Well, if they think they're going to be legends, that gives them a sense of well-being. Again, it's very distorted and disordered, and this is why we need science to come in and help us see what's a better way of doing it. But it's well-being that they're pursuing. You know, it's like if you had a scientist who refused to follow scientific method, you dismiss their study. Well, if you have a philosopher who refuses to follow the philosophy that they're preaching, dismiss them. Right? If they can't live by it or won't live by it, then what's the point in listening to them? What's the point in allowing hypocrites into a conversation that determines something as important as how we treat each other? Sam Harris actually referred to someone who was a similar conversation, and he put forward a hypothetical to this person. He said, well, what if, you know, a religion came up that said that you had to scoop out the eyes of every third child? Would that not be bad? And she said it would depend why they're doing it. You know, well, let's see if she lets someone scoop out the eyes of her child. 
she shouldn't be allowed in the conversation with that perspective because she wouldn't back it up. She wouldn't live by it. The trouble with religions and philosophies telling us how we should live is they have almost no regard for science and for facts, and many of them are thousands of years old before we knew fucking anything about anything, before we had even really developed critical thinking or skepticism or any kind of empiricism. That's old shit. You wouldn't use a computer that was 2,000 years old, would you? You'd upgrade to the, to the latest laptop. You, you wouldn't use a phone from 1980, would you? So why are we using moral systems that are thousands of years old and unchanged, essentially? Right? It blows my mind. They haven't been updated to match the increase in population, to deal with climate change to deal with the revelation that the human brain controls everything about us. You know, they, were, they weren't invented before that, you understand? The, the first version of the Bible, the Quran, was invented before we understood that the brain is the organ that makes us feel everything. Sam Harris's moral landscape isn't finished. It's really just beginning. It's just an idea that needs to be filled in with facts and information. But it can easily be developed into a system that guarantees the user an increased quality of life. Imagine I give you a system that guarantees that if you use it, you will make more money than you currently do. No matter who you are, all you have to do is follow the system and there is no way you won't make more money. There's no exceptions. Would you want that system? If I could show you a system that no matter what, if you followed it, you would become healthier. Physically, be better looking, better functioning, live longer. All you had to do was follow the system. There were never any exceptions. Would you want to know what it is? Of course you would. That's why these fucking health gurus sell out all their bullshit all the time. They promise that they've got the system. Well, they don't, but science does. Okay, It's actually got a range of systems depending on your preferences. But science can definitely tell you the right and wrong about eating, nutrition, exercise. For example, you're pretty much guaranteed to be as healthy as it's possible for a human to be if you stick to a Mediterranean diet. And you can Google it to see what that is. That is the healthiest way to eat, almost. And it can be proven. There's no way that eating McDonald's all your life will ever be better than that. You'll never get an exception to that. Well, there's even more. I mean, the science of psychology is new, but there's a lot of stuff coming out. There's clearly better ways of thinking and living for your psychological state of well-being. There are clearly people who function better than others psychologically, who have a better experience, more enjoyment, more self-worth, better decision-making, quicker problem-solving than others. And that they live by a system that somebody else could live by. For example, somebody who meditates every day is going to make better decisions than somebody who doesn't. On average, if all other, if all other factors are equal, you get twins who live the exact same life, one meditates and one doesn't, the meditating twin is going to have a better functioning brain than the one who doesn't. That doesn't mean that everyone should meditate. But if you're like, should I meditate or shouldn't I? There's a good chance that you should give it a go. It ranks higher than not doing it. 
lashing out with rage and vengeance every time something pisses you off, leads to a worse quality of life than taking a deep breath, thinking things through, and trying to get to a place of acceptance. That can be proven. And so on and so on. There are so many ways it can be proven to be better than other ways. And you don't have to do it. It's not one system. It's, you can pick and choose. There's lots of great ways to live. Right? You don't even have to just do the Mediterranean diet. You also you go vegan. You could do intermittent fasting. There's lots of good ways to manage your nutrition. And they're clearly better than the bad ways. There's lots of good ways to think and react to your emotions and there's clearly bad ways lots of good ways to manage your mental health there's clearly bad ways or worse ways harris's moral landscape is the only thing based in scientific fact everything else is based on opinion and those opinions not only are they thousands of years old most of them but they're also designed with hidden agendas religion ultimately is about control how do you get thousands and thousands of people millions of people who've never met each other to cooperate and go to war for you you get them all to believe in the same god and you say that the god says that they've got to go to war together somebody figured that out a long time ago and it worked gangbusters for them that's not to say that's why all people are religious or even why people who lead religions are doing it but that's originally the cause how do I get people to cooperate and do what I want? That might not be the best foundation for an objectively moral system. It's like following the Wolf of Wall Street for making money. Maybe it's not the best possible way, given the amount of damage he did. And where Sam Harris's moral landscape has peaks and valleys and nuance, there's gray areas in the middle that require discussion and individuality and Sometimes it'll work for you, but it won't work for him. There's no other moral system that does that. Everything else is black and white. I don't care who you are, you follow these rules. Given how varied humans are, there's no moral system that can work that way. There's no hard and fast rule that will work for every single human on the planet. So any moral system must be able to fluctuate according to the individual. It's just like the education system doesn't work because it tries to make every student go through the same process. Whether they're dyslexic or aspergic or genius, they all go through the same system. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, why would you make people from different cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds and preferences go through the same moral system? You know, why would you see Christianity on every country on earth, every age group, every person, following the same set of rules from the same book? No wonder they all disagree on what it says. No wonder there's so many different versions of it constantly splitting hairs over their points is because each individual perceives it a different way and can't follow it the same as the guy next to him. But science is applicable to every human on the planet, okay, because it allows for nuance. Because it goes, look, this will work if you're like this, but it won't work if you're like that. If you're like that, this will work better for you. And we can actually do that. You can... I can foresee a day in the future where you go get a blood test and an artificial intelligence goes, this is the best way for you to live based on your blood. And it would be right too. It would be like watching the artificial, you know, be like watching a supercomputer play chess. It would do exactly the best move every time based on the starting position of the game. 
We could easily do that with humans. We don't have all the information we need yet, but we have the tools to get that information. We will figure it out. And we've already got enough to do way better than the current moral systems that are around. If you think of like how much war and hatred and murder and rape and fucking child abuse and domestic violence and everything currently exists, not to mention just the nasty shit people do that's completely legal to each other on an everyday basis, Clearly, the moral systems people are following are failing, right? They're not even close to good. But if each and every one of them was somehow able to make decisions based on what is scientifically best, given the situation they're in, you'd see vast sweeping improvements in all of that behavior. And we don't need religion and philosophy to tell us. We need science to tell us. Now, this is where I want to enter in core values. Core values are something I go on about all the time. Something I was first introduced to as a basic exercise in Department of Corrections and have worked on it ever since. Now the word values means lots of different things to people and for a lot of people it means outcomes, like they value money or they value their family's health or something. That's not what I mean by values. Values are intrinsic, they are a motivation to do something. A, a, a concept that you place value on. Honesty is an example of a value. One way to think of values is how do you want to be treated by others or how do you wish other people behaved? That's, that's values. Do you want people to lie to you? No, then you value honesty. Do you want people to be cowards? No, then you value courage. Do you want people to play the victim? No, then you value responsibility. Do you want people to bitch and complain about things they can't control? No, then you value acceptance and so on. So values are a kind of principle that you live by, that guides your behavior. And I think there is a connection between uh, the moral landscape and core values. Very little is known at this stage about core values. There's been very little scientific research into the concept and what they are, where they come from. You know, that internal compass telling us what's right and wrong, even when it goes against what we've been taught. You know, those people that would breach the Ten Commandments of the Church, and still feel like they did the right thing. Where did that come from? I mean, the amount of Christians I know who have had sex before marriage, all of them deeply sinning, according to the Bible. There's not, no passage in the Bible that says that that's okay. And lots that say that it's not. And yet they do so without any guilt, or some shame, but only if they get caught by somebody else. The actual act they're fine with. They've come to their own decision, you know what, that part of the Bible, fuck that. Right? There, there are Islamic people who don't try to kill someone who's an infidel, right? They saw that bit in the Quran and said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and make my own judgment call on that one. I'm going to let people live however they want. Well, what are often called moderate Muslims. So there are people who are able to go against, say, their family's culture or their national, people who can break the laws and still feel like they're doing the right thing. Think about those people like, uh, say, someone like Nelson Mandela, people of his ilk, breaching the apartheid rules. They came to a decision on their own, and their own compass kind of led them away from doing what everybody else said they should do. There, you'll be able to find someone who's surrounded by people saying, you should do A, and yet that person goes, you know what, I'm going to do B, I think B is right. You get someone who's raised in violence, they're family beat them, their friends are violent, they're raised in gangs, and they still don't lay a hand on someone, they still think it's wrong to be violent. 
Where does that come from? We don't know, but I have my hypothesis. There's four parts to my hypothesis. One is we're born with core values. I think they are inherent. You can see them in children. You can see a child favoring curiosity. You can see them favoring honesty. You can see them favoring courage. You can see them favoring all kinds of things. And they haven't got to the point where they can make like conscious, rational, narrative-based decisions on this kind of thing yet. They just do it, right? There's a great book called uh, Your Philosophical Baby by Dr. Alison Gopnik, who talks about the science behind kind of showing that babies are born confident and, you know, the damage is done later. So I believe we're born with core values. I think I was born not wanting people to lie to me. I just couldn't put it into words until later in my life. B, I believe that they support well-being and are an evolutionary consequence. I think core values are with us because it's what's best for us. It's what allows us to survive. A lot of people would argue that being deceitful and dishonest is what allowed our ancestors to survive. You know, they sneak around and they tricked everyone better than everyone else. But I think more likely what allowed us to survive is that we form great relationships with each other. And that's not done with deceit. Okay, the reason human beings have flourished is because we get along well in big groups. And big groups start with little groups, pairings and families. And I think you find families that are upfront and honest with each other survive better than families who aren't. So I believe that our core values are there to help us live the best way we can. I believe we're trained out of these. So we're kind of like a, we're a species that survives in spite of. I think we would survive a lot fucking better. For a start, there wouldn't be so many of us and we wouldn't have destroyed our own planet if we lived more consistently with our natural core values. But instead, certain greedy psychopathic people thousands of years ago figured out that they can tell us what's right and wrong and get us to do shit that makes them rich and famous and comfortable. And we get trained into that. I saw a great post on Facebook a couple of months ago that said, traditions are peer pressure from dead people. You know, you're born into your legal system. You don't even have a say in it. You're often born into whatever religion you believe. I always find this ironic about religious people that 99% of them happen to be the religion that they were born into. That's a fluke, isn't it? We don't even get a choice. We're conditioned into other moral systems. I, I have no doubt that science will show you with the right kind of study that if someone is left to their own devices to figure out what's right and wrong, they will develop a strong guidance system for well-being um, based on their own core values that you won't actually need to teach them shit. Right, I, I'm very confident that I won't need to teach my daughter right from wrong. I can just ask her questions. Did you like it when that happened to you? So would you do that to someone else? And she can figure it out for herself. Louis C.K. did a great bit on this. He talked about how online bullying has turned kids basically into psychopaths because you can't see the other person's reaction, so there's no empathy. You send them a message like, oh, you're a fat fuck. Send it away and like, oh, that felt nice. I'm the man. But in old school, you had to actually say it to their face, and only the bullies, the, the fucking nutters, could do that. If you, you know, if every kid tells someone something nasty when they're younger because they, they're just being honest and they just don't know what's going on. But it's only when you first see someone go, oh, 
that you're like, oh shit, actually, I don't, I don't like that I cause that feeling. I got to rethink how I say things. So if you naturally allow a child to just determine what's right from wrong, I think 99 times out of 100, they're going to turn into a person who behaves in a way that's best for their own and other being other people's well-being. And there are exceptions, there are psychopaths, but there's good argument for why they're necessary in society as well. And there's actually some very great upgrades to personality disorder therapy that has allowed psychopaths and sociopaths to function well in society and increase not just their own but other people's well-being by living by a better moral code. And what's interesting is quite often you could argue that a psychopath living by their core values causes harm to others. And in a way, they that's true, but also they harm themselves. A lot of them end up in prison. They end up in high-risk situations. They end up in terrible relationships that they actually resent later on. There's lots of studies to show that. Because they haven't been taught better. Kind of like Dexter, but not to be a serial killer. You could easily teach a psychopath a moral code based on the science of well-being that they would actually prefer to live by themselves. So I think we're trained out of our core values by other moral systems. And the fourth D part of my hypothesis is that Sam Harris's moral landscape would lead us to valued living. That ultimately, how do you choose the peaks and the values? There's an internal guidance system, a compass we're born with that you can hone with scientific findings and evidence. You know, you might have a preference, say, towards honesty. You'd rather people didn't lie to you. That's your preference towards honesty. It doesn't matter how you treat others. If you don't want them to lie to you, then you prefer honesty. And then through research into social dynamics and self-confidence and the way the brain functions, you can find better ways to speak and be honest than other ways. Right? So you can hone their value. You can learn the science behind courage. How do you overcome your fears? There's actually a science behind that. You know, there's my little, what I call quantum parts courage. If you break things down into smaller steps, it's easier to do. There's this methodologies to living by values. They're not just some like airy fairy thing that you throw up in the air, like so much philosophy. It's actually something you can, you can turn into like guidance systems, step by step. Do this, then this, then this, and you get what you want. I'll give you some example. Being honest leads to transparency. Which means everyone involved gets the best available, most, truth, most truthful information possible. And you will find, no doubt, that if studied scientifically, if people have the best information to work on, to work with, they make the best possible decisions. So, honesty increases well-being. If you live by the value of respect, you're more likely to choose healthy food over unhealthy food. If every time you've got food placed in front of you and you're given scientific data about how that food affects you, and you ask yourself, what would be an act of respect? You're going to choose the healthier food and therefore increase your well-being. Courage. You can clearly see, and there's great studies that show that assertive courage people do better in their careers than cowards. And so on and so forth. So I do believe there's a marry-up between our natural core values and what Sam Harris calls the moral landscape. That our core values, better enhanced and clarified by science, are our moral guidance system. Okay, and we can be taught to live by this rather than being taught some fucking thing that's thousands of years old, designed by somebody who just wanted to control everyone so that he could take over the world. Like, we don't need that. That's terrible. It's worse. 
And if there's no other argument for Sam Harris's moral landscape, it's that it's clearly the best idea for morality yet. There hasn't been a better one because you can't prove any of the other ones are better. Doesn't matter what measurement you use, eventually you have to come back to well-being. Due to my original argument that well-being is not even a choice, the preference for well-being is in fact a fact rather than a preference. Let's finish up by talking about how to apply it. When it comes to practical application, it's a combination of discovering your own core values while also constantly upgrading your understanding of the latest scientific findings and using that to guide your decisions. For example, I've just become a parent. So I'm looking at attachment theory. What are the best practices to allow someone to build a secure attachment with their parents as opposed to an anxious or an avoidant one? Because I know, factually speaking, that my little daughter Chloe will have a better life with her if she has a secure attachment with us than if she has an anxious or an avoidant one. So rather than I'm just going to wing it when it comes to parenting, or I'm going to let a church tell me how to parent, or even I'm going to use the philosophy of Stoicism to tell me how to parent, no, I'm going to go to scientific findings. What is the best parenting? Because there is an answer to that. There is better parenting than other styles. It is without doubt better to not hit your kids than to hit them. It is without doubt better to empathize with your kids when they're emotional than to put them on timeout. That has been proven scientifically. So I'm not going to hit Chloe and I'm not going to put her on timeout as discipline. I'm going to let science tell me the better choices to make as a parent to give her the best possible chance at a life that's high in well-being. Right? It's like how I got my uh, cholesterol results back and they were bad. So I went to a website based in science that gives you recipes for food that are good for your health. Especially good for your heart because of a cholesterol problem, my risk of heart disease. So instead of just guessing what to eat, or just eating what other people make for me, I'll go, science, what's the best chance I've got? You know, what food do I need to eat to give me the best possible chance? I'll eat that food. Now, which particular dishes I cook come down to preference of flavors and availability of produce and so on. There's still nuance in this. There's still autonomy. I'm not being prescribed a set of recipes that I must eat for the rest of my life. I'm just given a range of options to choose from, and I can feel safe with any of those options. All of them are good for well-being. Just like I know that all fast food restaurants are bad for my well-being. If I've got psychological issues, I apply cognitive behavioral therapy, or at least the theories of it. Right? I learn how to manage my emotions and my thoughts, and especially to make decisions about my behavior. I learn how to take a breath after a thought or a narrative or a feeling comes up and make sure I don't act in a knee-jerk reaction, but carefully assess the situation and then ask myself what I'd do if I was feeling clear-headed and then do that. It's much better doing that than doing either what other people tell me I should do or doing what I feel like doing without even putting any thought into it. And when I say it's better, I mean it's psychologically proven that people that follow CBT principles have Better well-being psychologically than people who don't. Down to the fact that I use economic theory to manage my budget and my investments. Okay, I did research, two years worth. I, did a, I made a whole course on it for people. Of what's the most scientifically valid way to manage investments? For example, and this is, this is great because the data is there, index funds. 
if you get shares that are spread around the entire stock market, you're basically guaranteed to go up because the stock market's been going up on average of 7% ever since it started. That's scientific fact. So rather than like, oh, you should go invest in GameStop because some weirdos on Reddit did it just to cause a scene, that's not scientific. They did it for moral reasons, some of them anyway, you know? Fuck the hedge fund guys, we're going to disrupt them by betting on something that they tried to short or whatever it was. I was like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to science. What does science say I should do with my money? And science has got some very clear-cut ideas about what you should do with your money and what you shouldn't. So I'm going to do what science says. And you know what? I've been doing that for a year now, and all my investments have gone up 14%. Disregard virtues. What other people say your value should be. Opinion-based morality. Because it's all based on conformity and control. It's severely outdated. It has almost no relationship with science. And I'd like to finish off, and this is totally opinion now, so forget science because this is just my opinion. I want to give you 10 new commandments to live by that will guarantee a life of well-being, in my opinion. Number one, honesty. Why? Because long story short, it leads you to be shameless, and without shame you have the highest level of self-confidence available. Not only that, honesty is shown without a shadow of a doubt to create better relationships than dishonesty. So if you live by the value of honesty consistently, you end up with high self-confidence or higher self-confidence and better quality relationships. Number two, responsibility. There's now finally some solid research come out to show that people who live in a victim mindset and view the world as like being against them and unfair have lower quality of lives than people who take responsibility for themselves who say, you know, this is my shit, I've got to deal with it. Those people have better quality of life. Number three, courage. Again, plenty of data to show that people who are willing to get uncomfortable and face their fears end up with better outcomes and a better sense of confidence. Number four, respect. In other words, live and let live. You'll find that hatred of other people and trying to interfere with other people's lives actually makes you more miserable, not less. But also allowing people to fuck with your own life makes you miserable. So as long as you maintain confrontational boundaries with anyone trying to interfere with your way of living, while at the same time allowing them to live theirs, you'll have a higher quality of life than people who don't do that. Number five, acceptance. Letting go of what you can't control. Something the mystics and other philosophies and religions have actually all agreed on since the beginning of time. If you try to control that which you can't, you just end up frustrated and stressed. Science will prove that to you as well. It's kind of the counter to responsibility. If you're so busy focusing on what you can control that you ignore what you can't, you generally experience the least amount of anxiety, disappointment, depression, stress, frustration, rage, so on. Number six, curiosity. There's one thing for sure that science has shown us, and that is we do not have all the answers, and we never will, so we have to keep asking the questions. There is no final answer. It's the one thing that most philosophies and religions have in common. They say, we've answered all the questions, no need for further investigation. Stoicism says, here's your four virtues, no need for further discussion for thousands of years. You know, the Quran says, here's your ten commandments. Some dude named Muhammad put them out there, I think. Uh, so just follow that, no matter what happens, even if there's like technology and, and stuff. Don't worry about that, just, just follow these, even though... It was done, you know, pre-industrial age. Curiosity is about, okay, 
given where we're at currently and what we know, what else do we need to know? What don't we know? Let's be careful. Let's be skeptical. Let's be honest about what we don't know and not make decisions without investigating for the truth. So those are my top six, and then I've got four more. Number seven, minimalism. Again, not much science been done on this yet, but enough to show that clearly people who are moderate and have the least amount of stuff and try to live in experiences rather than things have a better quality of life than the others. Number eight, essentialism. If you prioritize a few small important things that are highly aligned with your values and disregard all the meaningless stuff, instead of being the busy person who does everything in a half-hearted way, you'll have a higher quality of life. Number nine, presence. Anxiety is worrying about the future. Depression is looking back on the past with regret most of the time. Presence is where confidence exists, being here and now. What is real? What's actually in front of me? Not the story I add to it, but just the raw data. You know, this person screaming at me might be an asshole trying to ruin my life, or they're just a person making noise. And if they're just a person making noise, it's not that big a deal. So presence is really great for confidence. The more you are here now with reality, the less you suffer. And finally, just in case any of these commandments are wrong, nuance. Number 10. There are always ways to break the rules. There are always situations that call for rules to be broken. It's the one thing that every philosophy and religion seems to lack is the like exceptions, the possibility that sometimes you've got to go outside of the rules. And I think that should always be a possibility in a completely moral life. So those are my thoughts, Sam Harris's moral landscape and just my thoughts in general on how people should live. While it might be an opinion, I really challenge any philosopher out there who uses Hume's guillotine to cut apart Sam Harris's moral landscape to actually live by what they say, okay? If you really can't say that throwing acid in someone's face is something we not ought to do, then throw acid in your own face to prove it. If you can't do it, then you'll say, it's a fact, you can't do it. Just like you can't escape gravity. So let's work with facts when it comes to morality rather than opinion. Because human opinions are shit. All right, rant over. By the way, if you ever get coaching with me, I'm not actually going to try and force you to live by any one particular moral code. All I'm ever going to do is try and help you figure out your own and live by it. I've had clients who live in a way that I disagree with, but they're cool with it. And so I support them to do that. Okay. So in the end, I really do believe each human being individually has the ability to design or should I say, enhance the moral compass that they've been born with. And that's what I do with coaching. I don't actually tell people how to live. So that's a little bit different to what I do on this podcast, where sometimes I say, we should live this way. I don't actually do that with coaching. I just want to put that out there for anyone considering working with me. You don't have to worry that I'm going to try and make you live by those commandments I just made up. I'm not. Thank you so much for watching or listening. And uh, I'll see you all next time. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity.